Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Brian Berger. I'm one of your pastors here. I've actually been on staff here. I think this August has been 10 years, I think. I'm going to check with Neil on that date, but I think, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been great partnering with you, serving with you. Um, my wife and I came here in 1998. We dated here. We were married here. We've raised our kids here. So I feel like a strong family connection with you, and uh, as I'm watching you sing and listen, I'm just filled with, with joy. And really, as we get to start this uh, series in Philippians, that's really kind of the heartbeat of the letter. So if, if you haven't been here in a while, we finished a series and called Love Walk Among Us, and it was about the life of Jesus. We looked verse by verse at certain snapshots of Jesus' life, and if God is love, and God walked among us in the incarnation, Jesus, then what did his life look like as love, love walked among us? And it informed us on what love really looks like, God kind of love. Then we jumped in the Old Testament. We went uh, through the prophet Noah. I mean, I'm sorry, Jonah. <laughs> Neil's shaking his head at me. Jonah, which is a short, uh, short series, and, and we're going to jump into another short series, but now we're back in the New Testament, in the, in the book of Philippians. Now, we call it the book of Philippians, but it is actually a letter. What we're about to read is a letter between the Apostle Paul and one of his most beloved churches, and we're going to see in the language that he uses and the things that he talks about, he is in love with these people, and uh, it's... it's because of that, because of this language and because of the, the tone of Paul, it's a lot of Christians' favorite book of the Bible. And I am no exception. I love this book. I would say in the last three years, giving myself to study this book, uh, I've been formed more in the last three years by this letter than probably any other piece of Scripture in the past three years. And specifically, if you want to work ahead, chapter 2, there's this amazing gospel poem about the shape of Jesus' life, and it is beautiful, and I can't wait till we get there. Um, another reason why this is a favorite, not only because it's short, but there's a ton of great doctrine and truth that's kind of crammed into these, like, money verses. In fact, I would say that probably Philippians, if we were to chart out the number of tattoos that come from each book of the Bible, Philippians would be towards the top. Like, there's a lot of just great memory verses. You know, in 8 o'clock, I didn't use tattoo. I said, there's a lot of good bumper stickers, you know, and they were shaking their head like that, you know. But because of that, because they're short and precise and portable and you can memorize them, it's also uh, a book, uh, a lot of these verses have been misused probably more than the other uh, books. So, for instance, when I was... Uh, playing baseball as a youngster, I had Philippians, I had a Philippians verse on my batting glove, and it said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so I wrote that on my batting gloves, and it was kind of like, I can hit a home run right now. I'm about to hit a bomb because Christ is going to strengthen me, you know? And then I met this, one of my teammates, and he was a new Christian. His name was Tyler Johnson. And he was like, hey, have you ever read that verse? And I was like, yeah. I mean, he says, I think it's about contentment. And Paul was actually talking about you can be content being poor or you can be content being rich, but you can do all of it through Christ who strengthens you. And I was like, oh, shoot. 
I got to take these batting gloves off. Now, thankfully, I didn't tattoo it. That would have been a little bit more difficult. But uh, as, as I've prepared, I felt like God has done something in me that I'm like bubbling up inside, ready to get into this. And it's just impossible. I really feel the task is impossible to bring you on the same journey. So I'm going to ask God that he would do that for us this morning. So let's pray. Father, we want to hear from you. Uh, we're waiting for you as we sang. We need to hear from you. We want to be shaped by you. God, I want, I want my brothers and sisters to feel your love this morning. Uh, they need to be reminded that you love them, that you have a plan for them, that you sent your son for them, and that you have a mission for them. And I pray you would send us, send us today. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, last night, I was at a wedding rehearsal, and I sat down with a lovely couple, and we had a great conversation, and we were exchanging kind of our stories of how we met our spouse. And so uh, theirs was really funny. The parents kind of, it was like a blind setup. They were on their way to dinner. We're going to meet this family. Oh, and by the way, they have a boy your age, and we'd really like you to meet him. And the daughter is like, are you serious? This is a setup, you know? And they said the same thing on the other side, and they met that day, and they never broke up, and they've been married 30-something years. It was a great story. This, this letter is, 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 is Paul and a church that are in love. They've been together for years, and I feel like before we get into this letter, which we can really read this affection in, I need to tell you the story of how they met, kind of like last night. And so I'm going to start in Genesis. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to start in Genesis. <laughs> I'm going to start uh, with the life of Jesus. Jesus was the incarnation of God, Yahweh, God's Son. He was the promised Messiah. It was the Jewish hope that the day of the Lord would come, Messiah King would come and turn everything right, righteous, that shalom or harmony would ooze out to the nations from Israel as the Messiah leads in righteousness. And this is the hope, and Jesus comes, and he's an ordinary man and is unrecognized, and he confronts the powers of darkness, and it gets him crucified by the Romans. But on the third day, he rises from the dead, something people just don't do. And for 40 days, he taught through the scriptures of how everything was leading up to Jesus. And he was the Christ, which is he was the king that was promised. And then he ascended, and the scriptures tell us that he is at the right hand of the Father right now, at the right hand of the Most High, and he is ruling everything. And he has a plan to take a world that has been broken by sin and rebellion and he has a plan to restore it or reconcile it to himself. Not just reconciling us, but reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Now, there was a man named Saul, and he did not believe this news. And he was living without lenses. 
In fact, he saw as a Jew that this was a threat to their people, a threat to their nation, a threat to their future, and he was so fearful of God and loving of his nation that he was going to stomp this movement out. These Christians are a threat and they're dangerous, and that's how he saw it. And then God gave him new lenses. And on the road to Damascus, he's going to imprison Christians, ravaging the church, going from house to house, knocking on the door, pulling them out, men and women in prison, and Jesus confronts him and knocks him on the ground. A bright light blinds him. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. And that day, Paul, Saul, gets new lenses. Not only physically did he restore his sight from being blind, but now he could look at this news and say, oh my God, my Lord, this thing that I thought was a threat, you've allowed me to see the truth that King Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. You'll hear Saul or Paul say this often in his letters. And I want to take just a pause and go to Hebrews really quick to explain this lens. If we have the verse, I believe it's Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen or the certainty of things that you cannot see. Again, Saul, the Jew, persecutor of Jesus, becomes Paul, the Jewish evangelist for Jesus. Why? How? He was gifted faith, the ability to see what formerly was unseen. Do you see that? Now, this is really important for our letter because Paul is in prison writing this love letter to this church, and he's writing about joy, and that does not make sense. And he's writing to a church that he loves a lot, and they're being persecuted. That does not make sense that he's rejoicing, and he says, and I say it again, rejoice, right? You're getting beat up. I'm in prison and flogged. Rejoice. I go, what? And then we understand that he had faith, and that he was living in a perspective where he saw Jesus Christ as Lord, and it changed everything. He goes on a mission, and he goes to Philippi. Actually, he was in Asia Minor with some friends, and every door was being shut. No opportunity to share the good news. Every door was being shut, and he had a vision, and it was a man, and he said, come to Macedonia and help us. Paul wakes up the next morning and says, guys, we got to go to Philippi, and there they go. Macedonia is a big area. One of the main cities is Philippi, and they end up there, and Paul, like he always does, enters the city, and he's studying the culture. What do they worship? Where do they worship? Where are they having dialogue and conversation? And he doesn't find any place for him to engage in these conversations, not even a, a Jewish synagogue where he could talk about Messiah. And so he leaves the gates to pray, and he finds some women. And there's a woman, Lydia. And Lydia, 
Uh, it says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of, I'm not even going to say it because you guys already know how to pronounce it, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. He sees this woman and she's praying. Who are you praying to? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, that's my God. That's who I pray to. Have you heard the news? What news? The news of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the man from Nazareth. He was crucified and buried, but he rose from the dead, and now he's reigning on high. He's the promised Messiah, the Christ. This gospel is going out and bearing fruit all over the region, and now it's come to you. And Lydia, it says, God opened her heart, and she could see this message was true. Go to the next verse. And after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So if you get the scene, Lydia sees it. She's been given faith. And immediately she's baptized, she repents, and now she looks at her house differently. This is not for me. This is for you. And she welcomes them in, and a church is born in that house. Now, this is the engagement story of how Saul became Paul and how Paul met this church in Philippi. Now, the story gets better. Uh, Paul, Timothy, uh, a man named Silas and Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, are in Philippi, and they cast out uh, a demon out of a slave girl. And the ones that were profiting from this slave girl cause a commotion. They're so upset, and now all of a sudden the Romans come in, and they strip Silas and Paul, and they beat him, and they throw him in prison. They're in there singing and praising hymns that, again, makes no sense, right? They're praising God. They've just been stripped and beaten and imprisoned for sharing the gospel, but they have lenses on. And sure enough, God sends this earthquake, and the doors fling open of the prison. Can you imagine? We're praying in prison, and the earth quakes, and my shackles come off, and the doors open. What does he do? He stays right there. Now, the, the jailer is freaking out because he knows he's responsible. All the prisoners are out. The doors open. He is freaking out. He knows what the Romans are going to do to him. So he decides, I'm just going to take my own life so that I don't have to be tortured by my peers. And as he's about to take his own life, Paul says, hey, buddy, we're still here. He, what? And he goes in, and all of the prisoners, unshackled, door open, are still waiting. And this guy has a radical conversion moment, and he gets baptized. And God gives him eyes to see the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he repents and he's over at Lydia's, and they're hanging out, having meals, and this is the church. Paul and Silas and the boys get released from prison, and they leave, 
And this small church, as they're leaving, crying, probably crying, pull together their resources. We're going to send him out with gifts and money and food and provision. And on your journey, we want you to have this. We want you to be provided for. Again, now with new glasses, they're looking at their possessions and they're saying, this isn't for me. This looks like it's all for me. With faith, they're looking in a new way that says, everybody needs to know this, right? I have a new reality that I see. Everyone needs to know it. And this money now looks like a way to fund this ministry. And Paul says, from the first day we met until the moment he's writing this letter, you have partnered with me. Let's get into this letter. Verse 1, to all, uh, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and King Jesus, the Lord King Jesus. A very familiar Paul letter being written. Well, now we're going to see some of this flowery language, this love language come out. I thank my God, verse 3, in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. God is my witness. How I yearn for you with all the affection of King Jesus. Do you guys hear the tone? Most of Paul's other letters, there's a little bit of correction. Like he's, he's addressing an issue in the church. This starts out from the very beginning. I love you. <laughs> I'm longing for you. I'm, I'm yearning. I'm yearning for you. And why is he yearning for them? Because they have partnered with him. Now, we use this word called fellowship. You know, I can remember uh, in college, I'm studying biology for a test. And my buddy is like, let's go uh, throw the football around. And I'm like, sorry, man, I got to study. And he's like, you're going to study over fellowship? And I was like, oh, I guess I can't do that. Put down my studying, and I went and played football. And then my brother, who was a pastor at the time, was like, hey, you know playing the football is not fellowship, right? Oh, I don't know that. Fellowship is a word that we use for this relationship. But better translated, it's partnership. It's a family bond. It was used in two contexts, a family fellowship or a business, like a business fellowship, a partnership. I think, think of Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring. It is like this bond as they're on a mission. That is what is binding Paul to this church with these great affections. And he says this in the middle of it. Look at verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Now, why does he put that in there? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, let's just put ourselves in Paul's shoes. Actually, I have a friend, and my friend has a very dangerous job, and he's been exposed to a lot of chemicals, and there was, there was a moment in his life where he was experiencing a lot of anxiety about cancer or death or being sick because of all of this exposure. And I remember talking to him and saying, you know you're going to be with the Lord. You're secure in Christ. Christ has defeated death. He's come out of the grave, and you will too. And he says, no, it's not about me. It's, it's my kids, my family. Like, who will lead them in Christ, right? You know that feeling, right? And through prayer and remembering, he says, you know what? What happened in, in my life and my spiritual kind of awakening and maturity happened when my father actually passed away. God is in control of our maturity. If, I, if cancer takes me, God is the author and perfecter of their faith, and God will raise them. This is Paul's tone. As he's wrestling with his own possible execution, which we're going to see here coming up in the next passage, he's saying, yes, I will go be with the Lord, and that's good for me, but I really feel like I should be here and lead the church, and I can't tell which is the best. And as he's wrestling with this in a prison cell, away from his beloved church that's being persecuted, he realizes, wait a sec, I didn't start this thing. There was closed doors and no opportunity to speak, and God gave me a vision, and I went to Philippi, and there was nothing in the city that I could engage in, and I went out to that river, and I was praying, and I met that woman, and all of this happened. And then the, the demon-possessed girl and the slavery and the earthquake and the money. God has done all of this. And in his prison cell, days journeys away, worrying about his friends in Philippi, he becomes confident. Jesus Christ is on the throne. He is Lord and with eyes of faith, he can see, you did that. And you won't quit until they are who you've called them to be. We need to hear that this morning. Verse 9, he says, and this is my prayer. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, you know, those of you that know me, I think in pictures, just the first thing that came to my mind was a chocolate fountain. <laughs> and the moment I was a kid, I think it was at a bar mitzvah, actually, and there was a chocolate fountain, I was like, where is the hose that hooks up to this thing that is just flowing with chocolate goodness, right? The word for abounding, that your love may abound, is literally pouring over and over and spilling over. His prayer for his church in Philippi that he loves is that that same love that you've shown me will continue to pour over and over and over. But what kind of love is this? Now, I offended a lot of grandmas in the last service. I said, this is not grandma love. And I saw a bunch of like this. 
this is not, I was talking to someone on staff, and they're like, oh, I just love being a grandma. They come over, and I just spoil them rotten. Whatever they want, I just get, we just, we just spoil them rotten, give them whatever they want, and then we send them out the door, and we're like, oh, man, they're going to have a hard time undoing that. <laughs> I was like, I knew you were conspiring against us. This idea that love is, I support you no matter what. I love you. You guys are doing great. I'm like, keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. Whatever's right for you, just do it. I love it. I'm behind you. Go for it. This is not love pouring over and over and over in knowledge and discernment. That is not love. Jesus did not end up on a cross because he was telling the Romans, I love you guys so much. You guys are doing great. Keep doing it. Do whatever you want to do. Worship whoever you want. Jesus had real perspective. And when he came to earth, he saw there is a path that leads to perishing. And it's evil. And the path is set by the devil. And people are enslaved to his way, the pattern of the world. And they're spiritually blind. They have no faith. They have no glasses. And it would be evil for Jesus to comfort them and love them down this path of perishing. Jesus confronted the powers that were shaping that path, and he called them to repent. And there's another path that Jesus could see. And it was set by his Father. It's God's ways, his statutes. And this path leads to life and fruitfulness, flourishing. Now, parents, your kids are going down this path. Cheer them on. No, that's not love. You call them to the good life. He's praying that their love may abound more and more with truth, with right perspective, knowledge, and discernment. And what happens when love is pouring over and over as it's formed by God's truth and his scriptures and who Jesus is on the throne. What happens? It says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through King Jesus to the glory and praise of God. As I give myself to love, informed by God's truth, I began to be able to discern with my eyes of faith, this is perishing this is life. This old way is evil. This is goodness. This is unclean. This is holy. This is unrighteous. This is injustice. This is justice. And now, pure and blameless is a term used to no longer actively and unawaringly participating in evil and injustice. On the day that Jesus returns we will be found bearing the fruit. Like what is coming out of me from my focus on Jesus is love, informed by knowledge, peace, joy, kindness, goodness, justice, mercy. This is what comes out of a Christian when we give ourselves to the truth and the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul had already received from this church provision in prison, right? When I'm in a Roman prison, if I ever end up in a Roman prison, please send money. They don't feed you. You are totally dependent on visitors to bring you food and money. And, and the church in Philippi had sent Epaphroditus to bring food and money and provision for Paul in prison. And Epaphroditus almost died on the way to give him this provision. And Paul knows through their letter and Epaphroditus' uh, witness that that church is crazy concerned about him. He's in prison. We're being persecuted. Uh, the gospel is not advancing. What are we going to do? Our teacher, our leader might be facing execution. And Paul is comforting them with this. It's become known to all the guards that I'm in these chains because I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, some, we know that some became converted because at the end of the letter, he says, even some of those from the household of Caesar wish you greetings. They're brothers in the Lord. But a lot of the guards, the conversation is, as Paul is in prison, what is this guy in here for? Uh, he believes this, this Jew from Nazareth uh, is the Messiah, the Christ, and he believes that he rose from the dead. And Paul is listening to them, maybe even mock him. And he's like, hey, I'm stuck in here. I can't get the word out, but now I'm listening to them. And in their mockery, they're telling the story. They're telling the story of the gospel. And he tells the church, hey, I just want you to know, as bad as this looks, the gospel cannot be stopped. People are still talking about it, and people are still receiving new lenses. And he says this, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's saying even the Christians in town are now without fear preaching the gospel more. How does that work? Your leader goes to prison and everybody gets more bold? There's two things I think might be happening here. Number one, it could be that their leader is so brave, is willing to go to prison for this, and it emboldens me, and now I am just like, I'm ready to go too. That could be one thing. It also could be that because Paul was doing a lot of the evangelism and now he's locked up, they're thinking, well, who's going to spread the message now? It's got to be us. We have to do it now. It's very similar to when Tom Schrader passed away and the pastors are kind of like looking at each other like, our founder, he's passed. Like, we're the guys. Like, we got to do this. We got to carry this on. And there's like more of an energy and more of a boldness. Either way, Paul is saying, in my imprisonment, Christians are talking about it more. The guards are talking it more. And then he says this, it's true, some indeed preach Christ, Jesus the King, from envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, 
knowing that I am put here in defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He's saying, as I have gone to prison for the defense of the gospel, there have been other leaders that have moved in out of selfish ambition to take advantage of the vacancy in leadership and have risen to power and are actually mocking uh, Paul. Now, the phrase, this phrase that he uses here is, was used, um, I believe, by Socrates, and it's the only place that this phrase is used, and it means this uh, envy and rivalry is when there is a void of leadership, the vacuum that it creates of people that want his position. So, if you can imagine Paul in prison, and now there's new leaders that are greedy, that are at selfish ambition, and Paul says about this, this looks really bad for the church, right? Greedy pastors with selfish ambition, and then with his faith goggles on, he goes, but you know what? They're still sharing the gospel. They're still proclaiming Jesus. Have you guys ever got the like heebie-jeebies when you listen to a pastor and you're like, I think this guy's kind of a jerk. And like he's telling the truth, but mm, like, and I just find myself critiquing. Paul goes, hey, I know that ain't right, but the people in the audience, there's still people that are hearing Jesus Christ is Lord, and they're still receiving eyes of faith, and they're being reconciled to God through the cross. The gospel cannot be stopped. I have a few pastoral reflections. That's the end of my section. But as I, uh, last night I told Julie, I'm like, I need, I need a so what. Will you, I, we got down on our knees, and I'm like, just pray God would give me the Tom Schrader tie a knot, so what? And she prayed for me, and I wrote down a four things. When you can see that King Jesus is Lord, everything looks different. My circumstances look different. My money looks different. My home and hospitality looks different. The goal of my life looks different. From comfort and ease to advancement of the gospel. From seeking first my gain to seeking first the kingdom of God, that man's kingdom, the one that's sitting at the right hand of God and his ruling. This is not a faith that I keep uh, on my shirt. And when I get to the pearly gates, they give me a doctrinal quiz and they say, why should you come in? And I go, ah, oh, what, what did they teach? Oh, um, Jesus did it for me. Is that right? <laughs> Glad I kept these glasses. I had no use for them my entire life. When I came before the Lord, I aced the test. Sometimes we talk about the gospel in that way. The gospel is a reality now. Jesus Christ is Lord now. And his kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness, and we have been reconciled to him. Our lives with faith produce the fruit of righteousness now and when He returns, fully when He returns. 
The second observation I had was, these are sweet relationships. Like, this bond, koinonia, fellowship, partnership is sweet. And we're going to see as we continue in this letter, the love and appreciation just keeps going. And sometimes people read that and they go, I'm going to join a small group because I want that. And they go to the small group and they go, ah, the Joneses, they're like, eh. Brian, do you have another one? And you're like, the Nielsens, eh. right? The Anglins, eh, kind of. She's all right, but. Um, and then they keep coming back. We're looking for this. Uh, what Paul said he had, this fellowship. Do you have a group that actually does fellowship? Yes. Like, go to a hospital with somebody. This relationship. Walk through addiction with somebody. Go to a funeral with somebody. Somebody's out of cash. Bring some groceries to somebody. Right? This koinonia, this partnership, is based on mutual sacrifice and commitment and concern for one another and a common mission in the gospel. And that bond has created this fellowship. It's not immediate. This isn't like, oh, you like ASU football? Me too. Oh, awesome. Let's talk about Herm Edwards and let's like geek out about ASU football. That was cool. It's not that kind of relationship. We are invested in the same mission. And there are people, I mean, even as I'm looking around in this crowd, I'm making eye contact with people that I feel this fellowship and partnership with. And it's because... We've buried relatives. We've been to hospitals. We've seen people come to faith together. There's a history of investment. The third point is that you are God's workmanship. He began a work in you, and he will be faithful to finish it. He's bringing it out into completion. And some of you are frustrated with God because of his pace. You want this. Like, make me complete now. And God just doesn't work at that pace all the time. He made us in his image, and we walk at three miles an hour. I don't know if it's a stretch, but I think that means something. There's a slow pace to God. My daughter and I, we were looking at Redwoods up in Vancouver, and we're looking at this thing. And she makes this, like, comment, God does amazing things, but he takes a really long time to do it. And I was like... Oh my gosh, that was, that was amazing. This redwood, what we can't even wrap our arms around, it's like 10 feet wide diameter, and it grew that big through a pace that we can't even observe with our eyes. God makes amazing things. He will complete you. He's not giving up. You don't give up. And you're frustrated with kids that maybe are, are not loving the Lord or going the wrong direction. God has a plan, and it's the long game. It's the redwood. If he has begun a work in that church through all these miracles, the demon-possessed girl, the earthquake, and all of it, he will complete it. If he has done a work in you, and he's given you this, this faith, and you can see that Jesus Christ says, Lord, keep these on. Keep him on, and he will complete the work. I'm going to make this my last one. Jesus is coming back. 
Paul says it twice, on the day of Christ Jesus, there is a promise that he will return and he is restoring all things. He's reconciling all things under him. He's purging evil and he will bring a new creation, newness, renewal, okay? That's happening. Now, when I leave my house and I say, kids, clean your room. Mom and dad are going out. I'll be back. I want to see those rooms cleaned. And I come back, and they're on the couch, and they're watching Netflix or something. Did you clean your room? Oh, I forgot. And I don't mean to put them on blast. I know all kids, I think. Do all kids do that? Okay, good. You guys are all right. All kids do that. What happened? They got busy watching Netflix, and they forgot dad was coming back. And so they weren't faithful to do what dad said. Jesus has left the house, and before he left, he's like, here's what I want. Disciples, all nations, I want this gospel to go to all nations, and I want you to baptize them and initiate them into our family, and then I want you to teach them this way of righteousness. I want you to teach them the the path to fruitfulness, okay? I'm going to be back. I'm on the throne. I control all things. I'm sending my spirit. He's going to help you, okay? Church, have we got busy with Netflix and forgot that he's coming back? Has the purpose and goal of our life become comfort? Netflix, money, investments, youth sports? Like we've given our life to that. And then he comes back and we're like, oh, sorry, we were watching Netflix and we forgot. We have to be an eschatological people. What does that mean? It means we're a people that live with the reality of these glasses. Our God is on the throne and he gave us a mission to do until he returns. Let's stay on that mission. Let me pray for you. Father, you've called us to be your children, but you've also called us to be your ambassadors and your witnesses to take this incredible news that you've opened our heart to receive, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you said to take it to every nation and to every neighbor. Lord, that the advancement of the gospel would become our goal and the thing in which we rejoice. And Lord, you'd give us this week lenses of faith to see in the midst of suffering that you are on the throne and that you do not quit on us. You will complete your work in us. You will complete your work in the church. And you will complete your work in the world because you promised it. And your word is true. I pray we would bubble over with love more and more and more and more in knowledge and discernment. So that we might bear the fruit of the kingdom of heaven now. Just like we will be in heaven. In Christ's name we pray, amen.